Welcome to the Learning Hook Podcast. Join our team as they explore topics across learning and development, e-learning, media production, and all those creative learning spaces in between. For us, it's the just-in-time, just-enough, and just-for-you. So let's learn, connect, perform, and do something great. Welcome. Our topic today is looking at the convergence of storytelling and learning. And we're really happy to have our guest today, Peter Allen, in the Learning Hook Studios. Uh, Peter is a lecturer at VCA in film and TV. But not only that, he's also an award-winning filmmaker and educator with a special interest in animation, visual effects and early film history. Um, He also blogs on film, so you'll have to check out his uh, blog later. With me in the studio is also Brendan Carter, founder and creative director here at The Learning Hook, and of course myself, Damala Scales-Gosh, learning designer here as well. I'm really excited about this conversation that we're going to have. So um, we're going to be actually looking at how storytelling and learning might converge, particularly looking at some classic learning and storytelling models and seeing what they might have in common. Um, Peter, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about you and what you're into and a bit about your background? Sure. Okay, first up, so I'm a lecturer in film and television and I act as the visual effects advisor to the VCA um, because I have a background in animation and visual effects, so I've done a bit of that professionally in music Mm. videos and TV commercials and a few feature films. I guess, uh, but it all comes back to storytelling in that I've always told stories, I guess, as from, Mm. from childhood, you know, drawing comic books or writing stories or things like that, and I became an animator because it was much easier to tell a visual story through animation for me because I could do that by myself. Um, If you make a film, you've got to assemble a crew and cast actors and all those kind of things. If you make an animation, you can just work by yourself in a dark room for a year and then at the end of it, (laughs) there's two minutes of story. Often I get pigeonholed as an animator, but I I just consider myself a filmmaker who tells stories and that was a convenient way to do it and I've also done live action and um, these days I teach exclusively into the live-action filmmaking stream, uh, and everything we do is about narrative fiction storytelling for their output, so they're becoming you know, filmmakers, writer-director filmmakers. Um, but in that, of course, there's the journey of teaching them how to tell stories, which I generally do by telling stories. <laughs> right. Where Sounds do they like... often end up, Peter? I mean, just out of interest, because you're at VCA, so yeah. so we can thank you for all our wonderful animators at ABC and... Um... <laughs> Well, you know, some of. I mean, the VCA, the film school there just celebrated its 50th anniversary last year, which is, you know, makes it the oldest film school in the country. It began at Swinburne and was uh, kind of uh, very successful, but um, grew out of, I think, the kind of graphic arts area. VCA has the luxury of uh, being a pretty exclusive school in the sense that we only take a very small number of students. Mm. So we'll take somewhere in the nature of about 16 or so students per year into the undergraduate degree. Wow, that uh, is exclusive. It, it feels like the NIDA, I guess, of sort of... Yeah, you know. so I guess we would hope to be considered on a similar kind of level. Um, yeah. Not that we're kind of saying that we only take the best the best of the best. What we say is mm. we only have room for this many students. Absolutely. That creates so, exclusivity you know, too. That's yeah. right. And our selection mm. process in, is entirely based on narrative mm. ability. So we do a selection test, which is the students who have to construct a visual narrative, and then they have to write a written story. Um, Mm. And in our interviews, we'll ask them to pitch us and tell us stories. 
So it's all about storytelling. Everything oh. we do is all about you know finding people who can communicate stories effectively and visually. And then once we get a group that we think have that ability, oh. you know, we spend three years with them trying to knock them into shape so they can do it professionally. That's so interesting for our listeners and for me as well, because what you're describing there, you could be another owner of an e-learning company that's describing a job ad for what we want to find in a great instructional yep. designer. I guess often now we refer to them as learning designers. Ultimately, they're designing learning experiences. Yep. I can't think of an idea that I haven't met that hasn't said they know people learn best through stories. And, and whether that's sort of learning through stories or no doubt in a communications point of view, how do we create great narrative? Mm. I know that, and that was <clears> driving you, Dabala, for yeah. the, the excitement around this, this interview totally today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're getting um, into the narrative. One of the things that I'm a bit excited about, and I'm not sure if it will take off, but I, I'm sort of excited about the possibilities of bringing a little bit more narrative to the development of learning resources, a bit more story-based. Mm. Maybe you could call it edutainment, but that sounds a bit sort of daggy. Yeah, bringing stories to learning resources yeah. and, and bringing learning to... Um, I think edutainment to... is an unfortunate term because <laughs> yes. it often seems like you're trying to hide the learning yeah. you know, aspect of it it's like, and trying to trick people into learning. And I don't think that's the intention. I mean, when I go into a classroom... I want to go in with stories, mm. but everybody in there knows they're there to learn something. Mm, yeah. um, I just genuinely believe that human beings absorb knowledge through narrative. Like that's how we communicate everything yeah. to each other. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's just the best, most efficient way for people to understand a topic or a, um, a particular point you're trying to make. So whenever I'm addressing something of particular importance, I always try to find a story that I can mm. tell to demonstrate, you know, especially around film safety, mm, like what yeah. can horribly, horribly go wrong? Yeah. Like, and here's four examples of where that's happened. Like, yeah, um, absolutely. They so, really stick know. in the brain, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah, the it's analogy and, to, and mnemonic memory yeah. is based around those types of, you know, methodologies for remembering yeah. stuff amazingly. So yeah. it's based on story. Yeah, you know, I, I met Tanzil Ali, who's Australia's uh, champion for memory. He goes right. and competes in the world, you know, Olympics of memory. He memorised the um, yellow page. It's kind of famous for that. Wow. And so you could say a page in the yellow pages. Yeah. He'd have to buy a year, I guess, by the yeah. edition yeah. that he yeah. could call. It's much smaller now. Yeah. <laughs> is. Um, this is way back when it was big too. That is true story. So, I mean, there's so yeah. much evidence around that. It's, yeah. it's something we all know as sort of a, a truth. Yes. But there's definitely a lot of research that backs it up as yeah. well. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's something yeah. we all know as a truth, but it is. But often in the construction of educational materials, people ignore it or have mm. forgotten it. So mm. I certainly recall as a younger student being incredibly bored and frustrated by a lot of the materials that I'd be given, which were literally just the data. You mm. know? It's like, this is... Content dump. You know, it's just... Exactly. It's a content yeah. dump and it's like, it has no relevance to me. I can't see the connection to my life in any way. But we know from ancient history, like it was always like, it's Aesop's fables or it's parables or it's mm. kind of, you know, mm. it's always that story hoping to provoke a question in, I think, in the listener. I think the question is always the same question, which is, you know, what would I do? You know, what, what would I do in that yeah. circumstance? And, and how is this relevant to that's me? That's the only question you want to ask, because once you've asked that question, it's like, well, I need that content. 
to mm. understand how yes. I'm going to approach that. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I'm really happy to have you here, Peter, because you know you were actually one of my teachers in I multimedia. Was. Peter taught me how to create 3D environments and animations in Lightwave, and I, I remember actually I was pretty into animating bits of paper. <laughs> I think that was the common thread to most of the animations I did. She's still doing paper prototyping, I, I should say. It's, paper all, it's all still paper. And, and still, sketch notes. That's right. I still like paper. Pen, well, that was one of the things paper. that I recall that, well, that the idea of working on paper um, for pre-production was something that we tried to really push back in those, even those yes. days. and, and a it's lot still of, with yeah, me. Yeah, good. 15 <laughs> years later. A lot of students were pushing against it, you yeah. know, wanting to jump straight into software and realise, you know, sketch is really important, you know, and yeah. even if it's, it's on the back of an planning and design too, isn't yeah. it? And what you were saying before too, Peter, around um, you, where you gravitated towards animation, I think you, you were sort of saying that, that that gave you the creativity to tell the stories yep. that you wanted and you could control it yourself too, that's I right. guess. But um, I know for us, that's not unfamiliar for sort of our clients that when we're coming up with a narrative, it, it affects budget too. Yeah. So that's we right. come up with these amazing ideas um, and then it's we could do it in anim- animated form and it'll be even, we can add a lot more to it, lots of layers of the visual narrative mm. but or live action, which costs more money. For some things, it's much more suitable to where we want the human experience, creativity with animations, just, you know, opens up lots of doors. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you a lot more yeah. control about, you know, how you represent the story visually. Mm. And I always like to think of animation as a combination of um, um, art and technology in a way because it brings art to life. And, you know, those of us who have looked into a bit of animation theory, you know, would go back to cave paintings where, you know, you go into the dark and you paint an animal in running pose on the wall and then when it's viewed in flickering firelight, you know, the flicker creates a sense of motion and then, you know, that you can kind of chart that directly through to, mm. you know... In, in mm. fact, there are cave paintings where animals with multiple legs are painted on the wall and you wow. say, why would they do that? And then, But when you view it under the same circumstances that they would have been viewing it, there is this astonishing kind of sense of movement um, to that. And that's an application of technology, you know, fire, to art. So it's a really, we've been doing it forever. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. And that's probably a good segue into what we're going to be looking at today, which is um, I had a look at, I was interested in seeing if some of the classics learning design models Mm. could be mapped to that classic storytelling model the hero's journey. So we might just quickly kind of overview these three because I've, I've done a little experiment here and I've tried mapping them and I've handed out a little table to everyone here to have a look at. Um, but let's just quickly go over the, the three, the hero's journey. Um, we're going to look at Gagne's nine events and Merrill's first principles and see if there's any common ground in those and if we mm. can possibly think about those when we're designing learning experiences and learning resources. Damala brought this up a little while ago and we just, you know, in between just busy production, of yeah. course, at work, but it was probably a few months ago where this sort of thought came across. Yeah, sort of in Whereas, the Cadence blog, I think we yeah, started thinking about We were getting about excited, yeah, yeah, Cadence, yeah. and we're talking about the hero's journey yes. and, and the love of, you know, I, I guess the, the truth there and, and how it permeates so many different stories. Mm. And Anyway, yeah, and I, I think then you came back and said, hmm... <laughs> Because oh, I'd related Gagne's model to the ARCS model and I'd sort of yes. done a, a mashup of, you know, a, an engagement model sort of aligned to Gagne's very structured nine events. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and then you said, well, what about the hero's journey? Yeah, let's chuck in the so hero's journey So now we've got you well. here, Peter. You're the expert on the hero's journey. And I don't know if we're the experts making... on Gunya, but uh, <laughs> we certainly know instruction and, and that. And we just thought, yeah, where are the links there? They're probably Maybe there are, maybe there are. Yeah, mm. I just thought it'd be something worth exploring. Um, obviously, you know, we'll see what comes out in the wash, but... Do you want to take us through the hero's journey at all? Or your, what are your thoughts on the hero's journey? Because let's not think about any of these as prescriptive steps that oh, everybody sure. needs to kind of tick off in a story sure. or in a learning experience. Yep. They're just... Um, actually, what, what I found really interesting when I was researching this was that um, that Merrill's first principles had something in common with um, the hero's journey in that they were both attempts by a researcher to do a sort of meta-analysis and to find some common principles or some common themes. I suspect like many people of my generation, my connection to the hero's journey is explicitly through Star Wars. You know, that's yes. how we all it heard is. about it. Yeah. Like it was, yeah. you know, nobody knew about it until Star Wars came out and then it became like, oh, well, you know, Lucas built on Joseph Campbell's work. And he sort of explicitly did that. It was been well sort of... That's right, yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Um, but having said that, he was also drawing from existing stories that I think intuitively just followed that same mm. form because it is a consistent and common form. And it is it does follow very much the kind of structure that we would talk to students about in developing a narrative, which is at the very beginning, you introduce the ordinary or the mundane world, that is the world in which the protagonist exists, then the next stage is the, oh. the call to adventure. You know, there's this kind of turning point where the hero is given an opportunity, which he immediately refuses because... You know, That's R2-D2, maybe Luke Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like, it's R2-D2. It's really the moment of kind of yeah. Ben Kenobi saying, mm. you should become a Jedi like your father, mm. and Luke says, oh, I can't leave here. I've got to go back and help my uncle with the harvest. I've got and farming. Kind of you know, yeah. I've, got, I've got work to do. People rely on me. Of course, there'll be a turning point about 20 minutes into a screenplay is what we usually find out is there's the turning point where something major happens which oh. um, changes the protagonist's idea. Um, so there's a bit of kind of uh, fluidity in where these things happen, but you know, we go into meeting with the mentor and that's often where the training starts. The protagonist is preparing to meet the challenge ahead. Mm. Um, and then critically, there's the crossing the threshold to the special world. And that can be, you know, stepping through a portal mm. or, you know, getting onto the Millennium Falcon and going into mm. hyperspace and being transported away from the planet into this new space mm. like, of literal space in that sense. Or it can be, you know, for those who might be into historical romance, stepping between the stones in Finding Jamie on the other side in <laughs> ancient kind of <laughs> Scotland order. Um, yeah. So there's that sense of, you know, going into a new space where the rules you're used to don't no longer apply. Mm. Oh. That's the thing. So it's forgetting what you know space. and learning how to deal with the new, mm. right? Oh. And then along comes tests, allies and enemies where everything you know is tested and challenged and that's where you struggle to understand how to deal with the new situation. And that narrows down to, as we say, approach to the innermost cave, which Lucas, in, if you've watched uh, Empire Strikes Back, he mm. literally puts in the film, like going into the dark space to... Um, He's in that, yeah, the cave. And where he battles you know, Darth Vader with visions of Vader. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the ordeal, which is kind of the, mm. uh, the action climax. Um, and then the reward... Hand of the Princess, or whatever it is that um, you would accept. Not in Star Wars' case, we were, that was a misdirect. We, that's less said about that. that was a um, the, uh, and there's uh, kind of the road back and the resurrection. I, some of this really applies, I think, more beautifully in Lord of the Rings when you look mm. at the um, end of the, the books. Um, 
And one thing I think we got a bit cheated with, although it ended like six times in the movies, is we kind of got cheated with the return to the Shire with the Hobbits. Mm. Because they finish the big adventure, but then they go back and they return as seasoned warriors and sort of mm. chase out Saruman and his kind of That's right. things who've kind of yeah. set up and things. So it's that uh, return to the ordinary world but changing the ordinary world as you return because when you return you're in, you're now a different character mm. so and you, you bring, bring something you bring the weight yeah. of your experience and with you and then you change that environment and are recognized for that change that is a great ending yeah. i've read lord of the rings probably four five times um i'll have to read it again soon it's been a while but um the end of that is very special and i hadn't really thought through that why that is yeah. but it is when they come home there's something as uh when you're experiencing that story that's really rewarding mm-hmm. you know, on their journey and that's yeah, right. in the film we, we don't see that it's the more the yeah i guess yeah in star wars maybe it's actually when they're kind of they're celebrated i think yeah. the princess gives them some medals yeah. you yeah, know like yeah. a wizard of oz almost yeah. you know <clears> star wars is a, yeah. is a little bit different in that it's the first film was never the complete narrative so it's oh. um so what we kind of get to is the right. reward but we never see the return to Tatooine, so um, it's yeah, it's kind of different. So we, whereas Lord of the Rings, I guess, had the more complete model of that kind of thing. So yeah. it's you know not every story follows every step, um, but the majority of them are kind of there and can be found. Mm-hmm. And perhaps there's steps that are more important. I was refreshing on Gunya's nine mm-hmm. steps before this, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we sort of loosely follow that. And yeah. I think that's actually the intention of those models. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, anyway, Gunya's nine instructional steps to yeah. sort of you know, he put together a very, uh, what at the time, I guess, a fairly rigid training program for World War II pilots. Um, so it was how do we train people really fast to get up in the air and fly plane? And that's where his model was kind of grew from, um, started there, and then obviously has developed it over time. But intentionally, like you said at the start, Damala, those steps, it's not saying that you have to have these nine steps for it to work. Mm. Or do you need all of Joseph Campbell's 12 sort of steps that, that we've listed here? For the story to yeah, work, yeah, but perhaps okay. there are bits in the story that are more important. Yeah. So in Gagne's model, there's research to show that where people have done work on looking at those nine steps and which ones are more critical, and it's the practice and feedback loops. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. The, without that, it's very hard to change performance or change understanding mm. or knowledge skills. Maybe Joseph Campbell's. If I was going to look at it as a pinch, I love the resurrection. I think that kind of bit helps in a lot of films where there's that sort of sense of often they they, they drop in water or something and they the rebirth bit yes. you know yes. sort of it yeah, is yeah. um seems to work well and they sometimes get the last sort of mm. like you think everything's okay at that point <laughs> and then there's one last monster or one last challenge that just sort of just That's a little right. test to sort of yeah. make sure you're, you're good to go back now. Yeah. I really like this. I was just thinking when you were describing the return with the elixir, that's kind of like I was just imagining the learner returning from their learning experience to their community, to their workplace. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's and really bringing something that yeah. they've yeah. discovered, that they've learned, that they've mastered into their into their yeah. work, into their everyday yeah. work and sharing it with and their that's the doing bit. with their colleagues, yeah. So, so they come back the hero, the hero's yeah. journey. <laughs> the learner's journey. Yeah, yeah, so we're kind of like, yeah, maybe calling this the learner's journey. <laughs> that would be ideal like, if that were to happen. And they may face some of the same reactions that maybe the hobbits did getting back to the Shire, which was, you know, ah, oh, what would you know? Like, but uh, it's the proof is in the practice. It's like it's when they then apply their skill, like their newfound kind of abilities and demonstrate to everybody that we are not 
not the people we were before. Mm. And we, you know, and mm. I guess if you can pick up something that's um, that you can just demonstrate through application, it's like, well, this is way I'm getting my work done way better than you guys are. So exactly. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Don't say do. Exactly. Yeah. And There's probably other nice. elements, just ones that jump out to me, Damala, too, is the tests and the the ordeals that learning. You know, we, we've got you know spoon feeding just teaches people to shape the spoon, and, and we need to really help our learners problem solve and find the answers themselves, and and have that cognitive sort of tension mm. <laughs> you know mm. where, where there is some that's how we grow when, yeah. when we are yeah. challenged, challenged and that's what we'll Absolutely, remember yeah. too from the movies the story from our own life experiences and it's those times we we saw it through yep i think well that comes back to the i've always felt as an educator in whatever position i've been is the most important thing you can teach a student is how to acquire more information how yeah. to develop new skills yeah, yeah. If I could teach you a specific thing, like, that's great. You know that thing, you know, but you need to understand and develop the ability to identify what you need to know and then identify pathways to acquire that knowledge and experience mm. yourself. Absolutely. And that's yeah. what I think the best structured education will do for you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So that's that problem solving yeah. and the ability to direct your own learning. Yeah. yeah. Understanding the yeah. quality of what you're doing as well. What you're saying about feedback is critically important. I mean, that's one of the things dealing with courses in the creative arts and I'm constantly trying to get across to my students is you can keep doing creating the same thing again and again and again forever and you'll have a huge mountain of work that's all the same level right <laughs> after everything you need to objectively identify what is good and bad about what you've just completed so the next thing is a little bit better and a little bit mm. better you can shovel manure all day but at the end of the day you've got a big a pile of manure, right so <laughs> So that's you've got to identify ways to improve it. Yeah, a great yeah. point. And that just made me think too because um, the role of the mentor is quite important in the hero's yeah. journey. Um, and also if we start thinking about learning as well, obviously the role of the mentor is important, but it's not just in terms of imparting or teaching, but in teaching people how to learn themselves yeah. as well. So that's a real difference. Um, and I think you are just pointing that out there too is like, when you're mentoring you. It's not just saying, okay, this is what you need to know, here it is. For example, Gagne talks about stimulus material. Mm. So it's not necessarily giving everything, but giving just what's needed and hopefully giving the learner or the hero or whoever it is the ability to then take that and learn themselves, deal with bigger challenges themselves, push themselves further next time. And that is kind of the role of the mentor really, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely has to be. If you think about it, a university course in Australia is three years for an undergraduate degree, mm. two semesters a year, 12 to 13 weeks a semester, mm. right? That's mm. not a lot of time, yeah. right? By it's the not, time you've completed yeah. your degree, you have not spent very much time in class. And depending on the course, I mean, our course is very much weighted towards FaceTime with the students, but many aren't. Like, the, yeah. you might be spending a couple of days a week maximum in those 12 weeks, mm. actually, in lectures or seminars. So if you're not trying to stimulate your students to find their own material, you know, to, mm. there's no way they're going to be gathering and absorbing the amount of information required for a lifetime's career or a lifetime's journey. Mm. It's an impossibility. So it's critical that students are inspired to investigate for themselves. I think. That's at the heart of a lot of awareness-type training that we do in our industry and certainly in e-learning for, for enterprise um, particularly, I think, a lot of e-learning is awareness training. It's very foundational sort of stuff. It's not a lot of the time mm. really deep and at learning. And so it's very important 
I'm not at all taking mm-hmm. away from the importance of the training, but it, a lot of it is awareness. It's foundation sort of stuff. And often, Peter, for us, we, we kind of get to the heart of it all. And it's that if there's just one thing they take away from this, mm. it's where to go to learn more, to do something about something. And also there's probably couple that with being able to identify certain situations, mm. whether they're you know, uh, leadership opportunities or, you know, conversations that matter or safety problems. It's that awareness stuff. We've taught them enough that they have recall from Mm. analogies and good stories and examples that we've got a learning hook in their sort of new schema. They've put it together and they'll then see a situation and go, I've learned about this. I know where to go to now recall what I learned. Because often you don't, right, you don't remember right. the, yeah. the, the three golden rules necessarily, but you know there are three golden rules mm. and, and where to go to get more or to learn more. Yeah. I was making a link before, Damala, and maybe I need to introduce Robert Gagne's nine events of instruction. Cause yeah, we let's through, run through Gagne and then Meryl quickly. I'll do it yeah. quickly because yeah. probably our listeners might be well, you know, familiar with these guys yeah. and, and certainly a lot of instruction has come out of, of their methods and approaches. And, and I should say too, for the nine events, I, I've often summed it up as explaining demonstrate practice mm. and then there's just a test maybe at the end that's my very simple version of yeah. Gagne's if anyone ever needs to put a lesson plan together in five minutes yeah. explain demonstrate and practice is such an easy way to do yeah. that explain it demonstrate it and practice it and have some feedback loops at the end or an assessment if you need to but Gagne's nine were aimed at face-to-face training specifically it has been adopted by a lot of e-learning designers because it's a, it's a good approach and, and they don't necessarily, all, all these steps, like I said, don't need to be there. Mm. Gain attention up front. So that's you. We often refer to that as a great learning hook, but it's great to get sort of a left of field idea or, or an arousal of some form, get people stimulated and thinking mm. maybe it's a joke or a, or a great story, a often the case, yep. or a question. Mm. Yeah, good reflective exercise. And then we inform learners of the objectives. You can do this in more exciting ways than today you're going to learn about or be able to do X, Y, and Z. And that probably leads into maybe Merrill's too approaches. And then we want to talk about stimuli. So that's then linking back for learners what's, um, what they can recall. And so that's sort of talking about experience. So yeah. that's a great point for any, particularly adult education, I think, is to talk to um, people's experiences and then they can relate it to themselves. Mm-hmm. Providing learning guidance. Um, so that's then doing examples, explaining, eliciting performance. So that's asking lots of questions, providing feedback on that, assessing performance, and then enhancing retention and transfer. So we show pictures of perhaps what we've just been training and outcomes, and people can link that back to their lives. Mm-hmm. So there, I guess the nine steps, and David Merrill's, Damala, did you want to... Yeah, so did a analysis of about seven different learning theories, and he was looking for mm-hmm. some common principles across them all, a little bit like what Joseph Campbell did with yeah. mythology and, and drama and story. So that's really interesting, I think, that they've both done this. And David Merrill basically came up with five that he saw as common across these seven, and the first one being that it needs to be a task, a real-world task, um, and then there's a, a four sort of phases. There's an activation phase where you activate prior knowledge or demonstrate or discuss a new structure that they can use. Demonstration in real-world context. So he often talks about it being real-world. So this is sort of harking back to the storytelling and, and putting it into a sort of a, a real context. Um, application, so that's where they practice and get feedback. And obviously that can go on for, for some time. And then integration to everyday life through reflection, discussion, debate or presentation. But once again, it's about bringing that back to your normal everyday life. And then when I had a go at 
mapping these. So what I've done in this table and in this little um, <laughs> diagram here. <laughs> we'll have to share a link to this amazing diagram. So if, you, if you're listening, you can see on the website, there'll be a hyperlink there that like like you can launch mandala this. It's a mandala. Yeah. Take a photo of it. It, it, it needs a new version. It's, it's the colours are not right. But anyway. <laughs> You've used watercolour. I have. That's, no, I've used um, aquarelles. Okay, right. you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great, that's fantastic. Yeah, because then you can just okay. colour it in and then that's you it. just get a Wash. bit of water in mm. So Yeah. So I really did think that there were some points that really mapped nicely across Garnier's Merrells. And I've used Vogler's, Christopher Vogler's version of, of the hero's journey. So there are a few different versions of the hero's journey. Supposedly the first one had 17 stages, so this one is 12. But So for example, we've got the ordinary world and then we've got the call to adventure. And I've mapped their Gagne's gain attention and Merrill's task or problem. Mm. So it's like, here we are, this is the central issue or problem or question that we need to solve in this experience or in this story. And then we've got refusal of the call. Now, Peter, you and I, <laughs> all of us educators who've done any face-to-face training, particularly with younger people, yeah. probably really can understand that there's often one or two or a group that might be refusing the call, <laughs> resisting, questioning, yes. Yes, indeed. or just I had a, on their I, iPhones. <laughs> years ago, I had a guy who had been one of my earliest students back in the days at, when I was teaching around you guys at TAFE, and... Um, came to me a few years after he graduated and had been kind of working in multimedia for a while. But he stopped me and said, oh, God, you wouldn't believe it. I said, what? He said, that stuff you taught us about pre-production, that's true. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it's like so, I'm shocked. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. believe it, but you were right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You do have to write stuff down and kind of plan things. It's amazing. Yeah. So he's yeah. crossed the threshold to the special yeah, he, world. he finally crossed the threshold <laughs> to, but after that reluctance, because a lot of people mm. I find in my particular industries, students come in thinking the creative arts is like, well, she just makes stuff up. It's creative. How hard can it be? And then you kind of explain the workflows that are required and there's a, there's a strong pushback about basically it can't be that much work. It can't be, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But of course it is. If, it's, if you want to make it a career, it is. If you want to make it a hobby, do whatever you want. But mm-hmm. if you want to work in an industry, mm-hmm. there's a process. And it takes quite a while for students to get over that, and some never do. Those who embrace it early just move on faster. That's such a great crossover to our industry again, Peter. I just I, I see exactly, you know, from a learning design point of view, it's those steps through analysis and all the little things that we do and document and check in and, and, and get right mm. in design land yeah, right. up front mm. and, and that's potentially the paper prototyping or um, yep. you know exactly before yeah. we go into fully fledged production. Yeah. Lots of different rapid cycles and iterations and prototyping we can do. Mm. But um, getting all those steps in place does differentiate um, probably the good for us project manager or learning designer compared to somebody who um, perhaps yeah, doesn't do enough analysis up front yeah. and all those that the rigor That's you know exactly right. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It, which we call the design phase which is yeah. pretty much the same yeah it's basically it's the a same design kind of phase model, where yeah. you putting your ideas down and then you're going through processes of testing those and mapping them out very thoroughly so that they're pretty well well tested before you actually start the expensive stuff <laughs> which is shooting or you know oh, right. all of that yeah. sort of media production if you get that wrong, it can be very expensive. Yeah, it can um, be, and the sketchbooks are cheap. So yeah, that's use right. as many of those as you can. And so. the papers, oh. yeah. So we've got meeting with the mentor. And I think 
Another interpretation of Gagné's inform objectives was um, orientate learners, or you could even say, you know, set goals. That could even be a mutual thing, sort of teacher instructor led, but it can also be something that can be decided between a student and a teacher. And then that maps across to David Merrill's activation, I thought. What do you guys think? I must admit, I'm, I'm looking, because I guess the purpose of this discussion too is to see, is, are there links and what are yeah, these links? And, yeah. and when I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to think, am I trying to apply Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey to a lesson? And I, I keep probably jumping ahead, which I can tendency to do and I'm thinking well it's almost Joseph Campbell's you know as opposed to a lesson it's the learning campaign because that learner's journey you know when we were talking before about returning to work with the sort of elixir or, or, or whatever or, yeah. or, or actually after a three-year time at university and going out in the brave new world I don't know if that's the you know that's not returning is it but they've potentially changed mm, and, yeah. and are ready to apply stuff yeah. and, and bring something new to, to what they do. Mm, anyway, yeah. so I guess what I was thinking, Damala, is that I see the, the Joseph Campbell piece, the set of cycles of Garnier's nine events in all of these little learning experiences, mm, which is a good training mm, model, mm, yeah. or I'll call it explain, demonstrate and practice, but um, they're the cycles of all these different little lessons but how we structure the blended learning experience, mm. which is the stuff within the classroom at university, the, the hours outside of that, the, the stuff you're doing potentially too at a social level and the water cooler conversations. It's that whole blend yeah. of how we support learners and touch them at different points in time that we apply these, um, anyway, the nine events are these mini cycles within the whole journey. I love the journey approach. I think that for me, I'm looking at the journey thinking we could do some really cool design around that and create a framework for blended learning. Yeah, so when we're looking at a blended learning campaign that includes face-to-face, -face, online, different performance support mm. tools, etc., mm. we look at ways to do that because there's all these gamification elements in there too. When yeah. you talked earlier, Peter, about edutainment, I used to do presentations on edutainment and I didn't think it was daggy. I thought it was really cool at the time. And now we do a lot of work in gamification, which yeah. I think is actually very similar. And we never want to lose sight of giving having people having a bit of fun yeah, yeah. with what they do. Anyway, I guess you asked me what my... Yeah, no, that's I've, good. I've, I've just said something good. different. I yeah. haven't aligned them so much to sort of specific areas because yeah. I guess I'm actually finding that challenging. I'm going, well, I could align it. But I don't know, I don't know how I'd go planning a lesson or an e-learning module, like a singular event, on the Joseph Campbell's Heroes Journey. Yeah. But I could see magic in that in going, what's our what's our blended learning campaign? You know what, we're gonna base this on a, a well kind of proven story. Mm. I would agree with that. I think that the hero's journey model applies over a larger period of time to the learning journey. So it's it's not a, it's not a lesson. It's no, that's right. It's not a lesson in itself. Yeah. But I think it's perfectly valid to say that you could take four or five of those points and relatively accurately, I think, map them to Gunnar and Merrill. But, but it's interesting, like the idea of looking at, say, a three-year degree and identifying that, well, okay, probably at the end of first semester of the first year, the students are probably going to be at this point on the yeah. hero's journey and kind of understanding that um, in the way you communicate information to them and kind of understand how likely they are to be accepting or in opposition to kind of accepting new ideas. It's a really interesting idea and it could assist with... Program design, blended yeah. campaign design. I actually mm. was interested in it because I 
would like to see developing more narrative story-based learning resources. So whether they even even if they're just in audio format or if mm. they're in video uh, format, that's, that's or really in, nice. in, in animation yeah. or VR. Done a bit of work in VR recently, so yeah, that's okay. very interesting. And, and I thought that that actually resonated with me, Damala, when you talked about the hero's journey of putting them in a new world and a right. place yeah. that they're not yeah. used to is, yeah. is really interesting. We were talking VR the other day and the importance too of warning people out or getting them in the right mindset to accept that new world because mm. otherwise mm. we have uh, refusal of the call <laughs> right. not, yeah. you know so we need to get that mindset like, right before they this? step into this sort of alter universe <laughs> yeah. or that's why millennium falcon you that's know. why they have to meet with yeah. the mentor before they cross the threshold <laughs> yes. because you know that yeah. lays the groundwork so yeah yeah, yeah obi-wan kenobi real left of field question do you use podcasts at all in your sort of training in some shape or form we have a learning management system, so we have an online space where students, where mm. you know, we can load information for students and communicate with students and mm. um, manage assessments and things like that. It's kind of up to individual staff how they manage that. A lot of courses that are more heavily lecture-based will mm. record them as either you know vodcast or podcast mm. to use for students. We tend not to do that because mm. a lot of our stuff is very practical, hands-on, in the studio kind of work. Mm. Having said that, I'm also embracing the idea of if I can find any content that I think is useful to students, mm. you know, I'll link them to it. So if I mm. find a podcast online somewhere that I think is um, really useful, I'll certainly mm. make them aware of it. There's this real resurgence we've seen in uh, mobile that's, you know, it's, we've seen, I think it's just it's, everybody's seen the um, serial come yeah, back absolutely. through podcasts. Mm. And, and that's just amazing storytelling. Yes, mm. that's right. It keeps us bums on seats and, and either downloading them all or anticipating next week's episode. Mm. And so that serial thinking is something that Damala again has said, let's explore that. Mm. And, and I think that was sort of on the back of too of thinking about the VR work yep. that we've done recently. And then it was, okay, so what about podcasts? And, and yep. should we be thinking about that? Is it a way to get our learners to tune in regularly? It's probably a lot of work in that narrative to get it to that quality, you know, Absolutely, as opposed yeah. to a lecture, script has you know, to it's still more of a, yeah. a little bit more of a serial and a yeah. story. Yeah, the script has to be amazing. Mm. But it, I think for things like soft skills, particularly, like where it's really helpful to hear how people are relating to each other and, and mm. what they're saying. I think there's certain situations where I think um, a narrative-based mm. resource could be really, really handy yeah, I think <laughs> and would, enjoyable yeah. for people to actually yeah. experience yeah. as well. Imagine if every workplace had the podcast chair and it was this really nice reclining kind of beanbag where you put your feet up. I like that. And you're surrounded by pot plants maybe. Well, that's and, where we're sitting you, now, isn't it? We've got, got three beanbags here. You've got this and... beautiful view out the window. And so I was like, hey, guys, I'm just going to do my 20-minute training in blah, blah. Um, go yeah. put the headphones oh. on, tune in. Everybody knows. Put your feet up. They do that in Korea, yeah, actually, I believe. Like, There's a training jacket that you wear. Now, I, I'll have to Google this after this saying, <laughs> stating that because it was something that a, a friend of mine passed on. He was over there doing um, some conference work and or presenting at a few conferences and he was talking about that they had a training jacket. Maybe it was within a few organisations. Mm. Um, but I found that really interesting. So you'd, you'd sit there because for us, Peter, with the e-learning side of things yeah. within business particularly, people are just interrupted all the time. That's so right. you don't have that quality headspace to get into some focus. And so, yeah, you put a big jacket on and everybody it's goes, like, oh, they're, they're doing online training. training. I'm not allowed to talk to them. Yeah. Well, beanbag's much better. Or you could have the option of lying back in the beanbag, putting your feet up if you're a little tired. But if you're mm. feeling like you need a little exercise, you could combine training with exercise and you put the podcast on and go for a walk around the block mm. for 20 minutes. That's right. 
Mm. How cool is that? For drivers, we're looking at it for a, a client of ours where they've got a lot of people on the road, and mm. um, it does raise questions too. Then for business, unfortunately, around OHS. So, yeah. okay. so we because they, they can't deliver training to these guys a lot. They don't mm. have access to a lot of computers. Mm. You know, when we want to roll something out, there's just so many <clears throat> people employed that you've got to find. You really want any learning or a digital solution to roll out to large numbers of people. Yeah, and we're thinking podcasts. Yeah. It was a great idea at the time. Create the resource that fits with the working day. Yeah. Um, because we can't always expect people to do it in their, you know, on the train, on the way to work Mm. or whatever. So create the resource that suits the learner. Every time I walk past a building site there's always a radio blaring so they're always listening to things so you know there must be an opportunity to be podcasting absolutely and in feedback too peter there's something that's worked for us i don't know if you'd ever consider it or do it i've had recent experience where i've gotten feedback from a teacher that feedback's come through in an audio file so rather than red pen it Mm. It's actually sent me a personal message, oh, which is much nice. more efficient for him. And you just listen to the audio. Mm. It's not edited down. So it's yeah. not a podcast as such, but it's actually this very human feedback. I really like that. Yeah. So I thought, that what a great approach to send a, an audio file to yeah. me as opposed to a, a written up doc. Yeah. Some people nice. mightn't like it, but I, I thought that yeah, that's a great great idea. It's probably a really good way to connect on a personal level with the learner and the mentor. I suspect there might be some issues around record keeping. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, it's still it is an interesting kind of idea because a lot of the time we'll be doing, say, a script tutorial where the mm. feedback I'm giving is the discussion, right? Mm. So they're telling me their story. I'm giving them my notes on it in mm. that meeting. So it isn't necessarily documented. It's a face to face. Yeah, kind of, mm. um, almost yeah. be great to have that recorded too. Yeah, yeah maybe they could. Mm. The learner could choose to do it. Yeah, well, true. sometimes yeah. they do. They use their phone to kind of record. Mm. Um, whether they listen to it ever or not is anybody's yeah. guess. But I just wanted to point out something I thought was quite funny when I was putting this together. I know we've sort of probably landed that this is not something that we probably use if we're just designing a short learning experience. It's just an interesting exploration in seeing what's common between these sort of classic storytelling models and these classic mm. learning design models. But one that I thought was funny when I was putting this together was um, number eight, stage eight in the hero's journey is the ordeal. And I've mm. mapped that to assess performance. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's true for some people that assessment is. is quite an ordeal. It's like oh, it's yeah. like the big panicky kind of like, oh, I'm about to do an exam or I'm about to do a test and I might fail. And, do you see um, a lot of that, Peter? With that sort to of do a performance. And, yeah, I do. I yeah. get a lot of... Co- as assessment time approaches, I start to get lots and lots of questions, like very, very pedantic <laughs> questions about, what if I do this? Will that impact my mark? How about this? Can I do this? I suspect that that reflects a great deal of anxiety in the minds of the students. As you know, it's a very small cohort, and we yeah, draw true, from a large right. pool, yeah. and yeah. they yeah. tend to have been very high flyers in their high schools or wherever they've come mm. from, and yeah. now they're suddenly thrust into a very new environment with people who are at least equally high achieving and so i think their entire world starts to be challenged in the sense of you know oh that maybe, is challenging yeah. maybe i'm not maybe, maybe i'm are. not the best jedi in the world after all that's right yeah, uh, yeah. and I, like i said i always tell stories and um oh, there's actually a lovely story i tell my students at the beginning of the year that oh. came from another graduate of mine who ended up working for disney television in sydney when they still existed Fantastic. in his first week 
he was sitting down in the lunchroom and you know, a guy he didn't know came up and started talking to say, oh, mm. you're that new guy who just started, aren't you? He said, mm. yeah, yeah, that's right. Said, and the guy said, I bet you were like the best art student in your school. I bet you won the art award for your school, didn't you? And um, my friend is like, yeah, I did. And he's thinking, wow, people are paying attention. They've noticed. <laughs> and then, Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> and says to the guy, how, how could you tell? And the guy just started laughing and pointed at the room and said, look around, mate, everybody in this room, you know, won the art prize in their school, mm. which was in some ways could be seen as a little bit mean, but I think was incredibly helpful, you know, oh, for wow. somebody at the very beginning of their journey to be just reminded that, look, this is a new space. You're not a big fish in a little pond anymore. Yeah. You're in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and I think that was a great lesson for anybody to learn at that point. And I tell that story to my students at the beginning of the year because for the same reason. They've all generally been high achievers in their small ponds, but the world is much bigger. And, that, uh, yeah. yeah, I can see why you tell that story. That's probably the learning hook. We love to ask everybody what their learning hook is. There might be others, but I, I like that anyway. I can see people hooking into that and that's yeah. sort of, they look around the classroom <laughs> and think, that's right. okay, get your point, Peter. That's right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so their journey begins. Yeah. <laughs> so I think in the hero's journey, part of the ordeal is about actually being pushed and challenged to your absolute limit and probably beyond in order to change and yep. in order to grow and in order to discover what you can do and use the new skills that you've been practising and so maybe part of assessment is to assess, you know, how well somebody understands or can demonstrate certain skills. But part of that is maybe also reinforcing learning and providing that challenge in order to cement the change. So there's kind of two levels to an assessment. So that's what I'm, I'm reading across from for the learner's journey, I mean, for the hero's journey and going, okay, well, we can really see assessment in, in two ways there, maybe. I think so. I mean, uh, you know, having come from the vet sector originally where it's all competency-based. Uh-huh. It's like, show me you can do it. To the higher ed sector in a creative arts school where it's really about surprising me. Like, you know, so uh, I have students, again, who I talk to and say, okay, well, if you meet the minimum requirements of the assessment, you will pass. It's like, well, how do I do better than a pass? It's like, well, I don't know. You'll have to surprise me. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. show me something new that I haven't seen before. You know, demonstrate your creativity which is very different to that old vet system of competency-based training, which is, mm. you know, about, you know, it's kind of not really assessed. It's just, can you do it? Yes, no. And go, if you tick all the yeses, then you get the qualification and mm. you're certified mm. to do that thing. But at the same time, within that um, model, you still want it to be more than that. You want it to, otherwise, you just end up with that thing of students coming in and doing the absolute minimum. Yes. And not stressing themselves and only doing what they already know and all those kind of things. So you want everybody to stretch themselves and learn something new and develop as people, not just as whatever their profession might be. A good course in any discipline will prepare you for life, mm, <laughs> not yeah. just the thing mm. you're doing. So, yeah. mm. so there's always that struggle, I guess, as an educator to try and encourage people to go beyond the minimum. Yeah, because we want them to return with the elixir to their um, community <laughs> exactly and, right. and bring mastery and, and boon to the ordinary world. I mean, ideally, yes, education should change the ordinary world. That's mm. what it should ultimately do. Once you get to the end of that journey, we don't necessarily want things to continue as always. We want people to you know, change their environment. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks, Peter, for coming in. I do want to add to this that um, 
both Peter and Brendan have been great mentors for me in my career, a different Peter with my teaching, <laughs> Brendan with my learning design. So um, thank you too um, for playing a really important role in my learner's journey <laughs> and also being great bosses. Um, oh, that's, you worked for me as well. That's right. <laughs> I she know. has to say that because she's currently working for <laughs> me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, how can we check out more of your work and what you do? Is that you know you've got a blog? I blog about movies at um, www.movienerdtalk.com. That's probably when mm. you'll see what I've thought of latest things, yeah. I guess. So I'm yeah, interested to that. talk about Blade Runner and also to know what the video clip you produced was. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. But oh, we'll sure. talk about we'll talk that about later, it. yeah. No, really interested. And everyone, please do get in touch with us at The Learning Hook if you'd like to talk more about learning design, learning solutions, or just chat about any of these things. We always love to talk. So, Peter, do you have a learning hook that you'd like to share with us? I always tell stories, but um, one of the things I really do, I've been doing the last few years, is I use props. So my students get broken up into production groups. Um, so I bring in a um, sorting hat from Harry Potter. Yep. And my students happen to be the perfect age to have grown up sort of mm-hmm. in the Harry mm-hmm. Potter world. Yeah, right. And I think what's great about that is they immediately understand what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. They're going to be set up, separated mm-hmm. into groups. But they also intuitively understand that within that context of group is a competitive nature. So it mm. inspires them to try and beat the other group and do better. You know, there's lots of jokes about who's going to get Hufflepuff or Gryffindor and all those kind of things, which <laughs> you know, I don't name the groups. But once the groups are set up, that competitive edge exists. Mm. And I think that inspires, hopefully, students to sort of aspire to a bit of excellence in what they're doing. Props like that are something that I really enjoy introducing into the classroom, and I'll wear my Slytherin t-shirt and kind of. <laughs> great. Uh, but you know, nerd. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Right. Um, I love it, Peter. So, that's yeah. a great learning hook. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the bringing in the that sort of con- it saves you so many words. That's right. To yeah. do that, like you said, everyone gets the context straight away. Uh, yeah, what a good one. Cool. So I think key insights from this is that we do see some similarities between these different models, storytelling and and learning models, but it's not a prescriptive thing that we can just apply to a lesson. It's probably something we can think about in terms of a a broader kind of program or campaign design. Anything else from you guys? Thanks for having me. Yeah, that was was great. Thanks, Peter. Great fun. See ya.